Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. So Laura, what are your reflections about higher ed organizing in 2022? Well, David, I'm really excited by the UC grad student strike and it recently wrapped up. I'm a bit disappointed with the yes vote. I was really uh, encouraged by all of the rank and file organizing going on for a no vote. And just basically what I could tell from social media, a lot of the organizing that was kind of going on on different campuses, like around the strike. I love to see a good dining hall liberation. And you could tell that this is really a movement that is drawing in a lot of people. And I love to see people's demands and expectations of what they deserve continuing to grow and escalate. So I was really happy about that. And even though I'm disappointed a little bit with the the yes vote, I do feel like there will probably be more down the line that's coming, coming out of all of that. And so I'm looking forward to that. Nice. And how about looking ahead to the new year, 2023? What's something that you want to see happen in campus (laughs) politics? I want to see, I want to see student and faculty solidarity. I want to see the demands keep growing. I want to see cops off campus as a key demand. It was really cool to see that emerging during the strike. I want cops off campus and I want free college for everybody. What about you, David? Tell me about what you're excited about. Or it could also be negative trends you noticed in 2022. What are your highlights? I mean, you know, the highlight obviously is the UC strike. Um, But I think even one of the amazing things is that you had the new school adjuncts go on strike even kind of it certainly got attention but it was happening during the same time as the UC strike and so it sort of showed or at least I felt thinking about 2022 that things were happening even beyond just the big one so we had the big one which was amazing the UC strike but we also had some other stuff happening including the new school we also had the strike at Eastern Michigan which we'll cover on a future episode And so it does feel a little bit like worker militancy is on the rise in our industry. I mean, it's always hard to say since the trends have been so poor, whether or not it is a little uptick or a big wave. Right. Um, But I think I get the vibes that people are feeling like the old compromise, you know, fixing things on the margins, coming up with little solutions on the edges are not going to cut it. And our industry is in crisis and only real structural change is going to work. So I don't know, that feels like something to be hopeful about. Maybe even in the end times, there's um, some kernel of a future for our industry. Well, thanks, David. Let's turn to our discussion for today. Today, we're going to be talking about rank and file organizing at South Seattle Community College with two faculty organizers, Zara Alavi and Charlotte Brunn. Our discussion focuses on building horizontal rank and file power within the faculty union. We cover topics such as fighting for open negotiations, the dynamics of white supremacy on the union executive board, student and faculty solidarity, and the importance of joy and community in organizing. 
Welcome to Office Hours. And Charlotte and Zara, could you both just introduce yourselves? Maybe we can start with Zara and just let us know what your position is at South Seattle College and what some of the organizing you've been working on. Sure. Hi, thank you. My name is Zara Alavi. I'm faculty at South Seattle College. I teach English language and adult education. I've been tenured faculty there since 2016, but with Seattle Colleges since 2012 as an adjunct. And I have been involved in the union in a number of different levels as an executive board member and then currently as a rank and file member of AFT 1789. And I'm Charlotte Brunn. Um, I am a faculty librarian at South Seattle College. I have been there since September 2020. And my involvement with the union work has been only as a rank and file member. And I've I've just been working with various group of faculties interested in organizing. Um, and that's sort of how I've been involved with this work. Thanks so much. I'd love to just get a sense of your personal experiences of your working conditions at your institution. So what are some of the big issues that faculty, uh, staff, and students face, um, maybe focusing on your faculty issues, but if you have a sense of staff and students as well. So what's going on at your institutions? Go ahead, Zara. Uh, well, right now we are in a time of negotiations for a salary. We have a salary reopener. Um, and that was uh, contingent on ratifying a contract that provided pay parity for faculty, which has been a very long time issue where faculty in um, various departments, sciences, transitional studies, uh, have been working uh, in an inequitable contract. Right. Same salary, just more hours for a certain class of faculty, fewer hours for another class. So this contract negotiation cycle brought us all to parity. But in order to get parity, we were not going to be able to get a raise. And so the promise was that if we ratified this contract with parity, there would be a salary wage reopener. And that has happened over the summer and administration has offered zero. The other issue that we've really faced, particularly over the last two years due to the pandemic, but also because we, our district has so grossly mismanaged the budget and forecasted, is that we've had a lot of full-time faculty who have taken a tenure buyout, uh, which was like a one-time payment, and then they're not tenured faculty anymore. So really? that has removed a lot of our, our workforce. We've got a lot of retirements and no rehires because of, again, we're in a budget crisis. We're in austerity. We can't rehire. Um, we've lost incredible amounts of classified staff, which really does impact our work environment as well, because students can't get access to financial aid. They're not enough advisors, so they are not able to register for classes or when they're dropped from a class because of, you know, whatever. So I think all of those things are also factors that are impacting our work and are things that we are trying to use our union to help us alleviate some of the burdens. Can you talk a little bit more about basically your relationship to the union and um, some of the work you've been doing to try to make the union a more fighting, you know, grassroots rank and file union? I think it maybe it's worth it to talk about our push to open negotiations that mm -hmm. we were trying to do last year. So um, 
part of the issue with this wage reopener was that when we came back to the negotiating table, we had nothing to negotiate with because we were only negotiating salaries. And so there was nothing to give. And so one of the tactics that we wanted to employ was to uh, open negotiations. And there was a lot of pushback, uh, both from our negotiation teams, who I think didn't quite understand how it would work. There was a lot of uh, fear of retaliation, I think. Um, and the administration like basically just used um what they basically what they said was that we had to negotiate like the terms of negotiation which we found out later is actually not true we don't have to <laughs> um but um so we spent a lot of time trying to negotiate on whether we were going to have open negotiation and that was a closed negotiation. Um, and um, then we tried to have, we had open sessions, alternate open sessions with closed sessions, but the only real negotiating was happening in the closed sessions. Um, and so how I've been involved in that work was doing a lot of organizing around um helping our rank and file understand what open negotiations meant, what they looked like, and how they could be a way to leverage power. Um, and so that's been a lot of the work that we did as rank and file last year. And we're hoping that it will have like some impact on how we go into this next um, cycle of negotiation. Um, but I think there's still a little bit of resistance um, amongst our union. For sure. If I can add a little bit onto that, uh, the push for open negotiations was also something that came from rank and file. And in recognition of the structure that our executive board takes, particularly in with the negotiations team, is that the, the approach that the negotiations chair was taking is that this is the money, this is what we think district will agree to. But in the rank and file meeting where just the idea of open negotiations was discussed and clarified and what it means, how to participate, what are, what are the roles of members in that open negotiation space was really shared. And, and, and there is a lot of educating that was happening in the rank and file meetings around what it means to have open negotiations and how it can work to our benefit. It was interesting to see that we have members who were supporting this and members who had a demand too of what our uh, salary request is, right? The percentage that we wanted and rank and file had a 40% salary increase demand. And then the executive board and the negotiations team said, well, we're gonna present a 15% ask because we believe that's what administration can give us. And so it was like a disregard for what the membership is asking. It is a, a strategy of, well, let's ask admin for what they will give us instead of what we need. And then allow administrators, like all the power is with administrators and all of the advocacy is also on behalf of what is gonna 
be acceptable to administration rather than attending to what faculty really need, which is a living wage so that a tenured faculty person is not unhoused, which is a case that we have, where we have part-time faculty who are, you know, working at multiple institutions and still can't put together a, a living wage. And to be ignored, to have that membership demand ignored because, well, administration's not going to like it, was mind-blowing. Like, the, the, the dissonance between how negotiations should happen between the team and the membership is wild. When I think part of how this has played out is that there is people like Zara, like me, who are willing to organize and be very involved and like sort of look at these dynamics. And there's also people who don't want to, don't have time for whatever reason, like really are um, relying on the elected as like a representative kind of model, right, of participation where like how I engage is by voting. And so they really trust the e-board. Um, and so that kind of also created a bit of a, a divide between people who were like, let's ask for more, let's organize, let's push and see what they can give us. And people who were like, well, my e-board is saying that they're never going to give us more than 15. So why have these pie in the sky conversations? And so I think like th there was like a real problem in like creating a coalition of solidarity. And that's kind of been an issue with um, how we've been engaging in the in the union is that there there's not a lot of effort from our leadership in the union to really create or and organize around solidarity and joy and care um and um and also just to kind of like sort of close out the story of of the the 15 percent ask is that when we did go to the negotiating table in good faith asking for 15 percent um then they came back with an offer of zero and they did that repeatedly. Um, and so that not only is it not what some of the people who were organizing were asking for and hoping for as a starting demand, but also it's not even what the administration was willing to give, contrary to what um, our negotiation team was hoping, right? And so like that really also shows I think the issue when we are scared of administration and when we forget that we have power um, and that we can leverage that power um, and unfortunately being coming to the negotiation table is not like having a conversation with your friends right like even though we can be friendly and professional with our supervisors with our administration like that's not what negotiations is about and I think there there's been a little bit of like disconnect for some people who maybe just like don't have the same vision of labor politics than I do around that concept. As this process progressed and the admin came around with the 0% offer, did that bolster the kind of work that was coming up from below because it sort of undermined some of the arguments that some of the union leadership had been making or what was some of the impact over time? Like were some of the arguments around building a more sort of fighting union able to push through as this process happened? 
I think for me, it did. <laughs> like if I can use myself as a case study here, I really started getting mm-hmm. involved in union work mm-hmm. at, like during the fall of last year. Um, actually, after Zara invited me to come to one of the meetings. Um, and um, that was such a blatant like example of disrespect mm-hmm. um, that like for me, it really solidified, but it, I'd been paying attention through like the lens of rank and file organizing um I think for some people it made them more scared um and it sort of like solidified in their mind that like oh admin isn't gonna give us anything so then we can't ask for anything um and at least like I can only say this because I've sort of noticed that some people maybe participated even less after that um maybe got discouraged Mm -hmm. a little bit um, I know for me, like it got just it got me fired up. And I think for some other people, that was the case, too. But I don't think that was necessarily the case for everyone. Yeah, it can be really hard to make people feel like they have collective power. And it seems like that should be what the union is is really doing, you know, um, instead of themselves kind of modeling that like fear and anxiety of alienating the administration. So that that sounds really frustrating. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, um, the the push for open negotiations and the clarification around what it means to have open negotiations was rank and file led, um, as well as like, what are our demands? What do we really need? You know, if we're living in King County and this is our salary, how much do we really need to be solvent? Um, and that was disregarded, right? And and I, I guess the interesting I, reflection on our, our union leadership, the negotiations team, is that in my view, it seemed that they purposely misunderstood what open negotiations meant. And so while AFT was able to host the every alternate meetings, Zoom link, and left it open for membership to observe. Um, the administration, when they hosted, did not. So folks were left in the waiting room. Um, but also, I think Charlotte, you had alluded to that about how the administration had said, well, this is how negotiations has to happen. And the, our negotiating team was compliant with that. And so even though we were, uh, in the Zoom and, and, and witnessing what was happening, we still saw our negotiation team go somewhere else to caucus and left the membership just in the room, you know, not knowing what's happening and not even when they came back said, well, we can't talk about it. And so we won't, we'll talk about other things. And to me as a member, it was deeply disturbing because I, this is, this is, my work uh, environment, my workplace conditions that are being discussed and why can't I inform that discussion or that negotiation? And why can't I also be um, receiving the information that might help me to be a more actively involved member um, or informed member? And that was really, it was sad to see that, you know, where there's, there's, some political education that's happening around what it means to be um, open, to have open negotiations and how powerful that can be. And then to witness your own union saying, 
something that is, you know, a distortion of that is, is distressing really, I think. Zara, I wanted to ask you, but when we were chatting before we started recording, you talked about how you had been on the e-board at one point and that you ended up stepping down uh, as a combination of uh, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but as a as a combination of just the the top down approach and also racism that you experienced on the board, and it just seemed like you you both of you were kind of having an intersectional analysis here of how racism was really kind of intertwined with a lot of the the um, I guess authoritarian top down politics, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and also some of the the um, BIPOC caucusing that you did in response to that? Sure. Um, I'm trying to think of how I want to frame this. Um, yes, I did serve on the executive board and I was the human civil rights chair. And some of the motions that were made in the board, some of the decisions that were made about where support is happening for faculty, which faculty, which initiatives are being supported, um, after a while it just showed a pattern. Of, of exclusionary behavior. Um, and I also at that near the end of my uh, two years tenure for being an e-board officer had received an opportunity to do something else professionally. And so I took that. Um, and it also for me was a relief because it felt very much like uh, the executive board was not a space that I could thrive in. Um, it, felt like a very combative space in a space where I was constantly on the defense. Um, and so it, it was a welcome relief to not <laughs> be on the executive board anymore. I think then coming back and, and organizing with rank and file um, at, and seeing the messaging from the e-board, particularly in 2020, particularly in response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and uh, an expression of like commitment to EDI, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion work, um, felt very disingenuous when none of the issues that had been raised about the way the union operates had been attended to. And so um, as Charlotte can attest, I, I, I'm an emotionally reactive person. And so I, um, often will react uh, guided by my emotions rather than by logic um, or strategy. And I responded like, this is not very, uh, this is a disingenuous response. And there is no actual evidence of uh, the union supporting equity, diversity and inclusion. And so to say that you are continuing to do so is, uh, is not true. Um, and then I reached, at the end of my, we have a faculty conversation listserv, which allows all faculty to converse with each other, um, which was a privilege that was removed from faculty for many years. And it was something that the librarians actually fought for reinstating. And it is interesting that our union president has removed themselves from that listserv because they don't like to read the messaging that goes back. So when all faculty are talking to each other about our workplace conditions, our executive board is willfully ignorant of those conversations 
um, and seems to willfully not want to listen to concerns that come from faculty. So in, in those replies, I didn't know at that time that um, the president wasn't on the listserv, um, but my, my, my um, reach out was to other faculty of color to caucus. And so through a couple um, email exchanges, we started meeting and there is a group of faculty who did come and it has been two years of us caucusing and part of that um, led to clarifications around, yes, we want to be a space for um, BIPOC faculty to discuss issues that are impacting us, but we also really wanted to ensure that our vision for um, this group and the work that we do is grounded in anti-racism, grounded in feminist practices, grounded in democratic practices, grounded in transparency, distributing leadership, you know, um, and, and absolutely like flattening the hierarchy so that we're, we're working together, right? Um, and through that work, we wrote a pledge around elections um, two years ago about pledging to uh, commit to these values and to the demands of defunding district, free tuition for students, um, you know, stop laying us off and firing us, um, really investing, having progressive taxation so that we can get revenue again, you know? So these were our demands that we uh, had created a petition that should people sign this and, um, run for an executive board position, it is under these values and these commitments. And so we built a slate. And honestly, like, I thought maybe there might be a couple, two, three folks who might sign up to be a candidate to run for some of the positions. We managed to get all of the seats filled with nominations with the, and, and people who agreed with what the Anti-Racist BIPOC Caucus was saying about how we want shifts in our union structure and how we would like people who have been upholding oppressive and racist practices to not run again, like make space for other folks. And um, it's interesting to see who remained and who, who didn't. Um, but this was kind of a push for changing the structures in the e-board. And it's been two years and, you know, um, there've been some wins for sure. We now are able to go to executive board meetings on Zoom and have a link where that was withheld. You had to email the president and request a link and then have the president reply back to you with a link to be able to attend your own executive board meetings. And it was a push from rank and file just to get those meetings, the Zoom link to membership. Um, and that has changed the way the board operates, I think dramatically because there's a lot more oversight or member involvement in there. Um, you know, and part of and the transparency, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, part of that is like, let's have more membership meetings. That was a push from rank and file. Let's have, you know, uh, members involved in planning the agendas and what happens in the meeting instead of having it so top down, but that's still a struggle that we're in. Um, but a lot of this is like, I think a resistance to the authoritarian structure 
uh, that's grounded in real white supremacy in our union that is really not doing anything to improve our workplace conditions. Three salary, or sorry, three contract negotiations um, have been overseen by a lot of our current union leaders and none of those contracts have won us a raise. None of those contracts have won us um, improved working conditions. They have won us parity, but I think parity at the cost of a lot of full-time positions, a lot of program instability, um, and not a lot of collective like uh, thinking and, and effort into those decisions. So it sounds, um, I just want to confirm because it sounds in hearing both the open bargaining and the BIPOC caucus work, that sounds like they've been interrelated in terms of pushing for more horizontal structures, more transparent structures. Is that is that a good summary that you would agree with? Totally. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think, so I, both Zara and I, I think, through different avenues have been attending um, organizing for powers like trainings that they've been doing around open bargaining. Um, and it's become really evident to me that like part of the importance of open bargaining is the fact that then everybody has a different role and can really learn um a piece of the puzzle that we're trying to push for and that that isn't work that can be done by five people and it's not work that should be done by five people or it should be done by like whoever wants to be involved in the membership um and so um I think like the horizontal structure that you're talking about David is like really um what we're trying to get to so that like everybody can when called upon show up in negotiations and if we can come to the negotiating table each prepared um at a different level we all have something to contribute i think one thing too that i've been really cognizant of is that not everybody not everybody has the same gifts in a union and that's good um and that it's a lie that we tell ourselves when we have people on the executive board who are having a hard time to delegate, for example, like, you know, their, their tech stuff. Um, um, like not everybody's good at everything. And that that's kind of the point of a union. Um, <laughs> and so I think like there's a, there's like a worry though in the horizontal structure because in a like in the structures that we have in place right like in white supremacy like there's a lot of fear around losing power and it's systemic um that you know we're not good enough and that people are not going to care for us if we aren't the best at it when even though sometimes we show up like in real shitty ways like I'm not always good at my job and that's okay um and so I think like my hope is that we can extend care to each other and that's not really present all the time right now. Um, but I think like, like for example, like not to toot our own horn, but like Zara and I are really good at extending care to each other, even when we disagree. And even when we like, you know, think about things differently and in ways that perhaps like contradict each other. Like, I think that we have room for care. 
Um, and that's part of why the horizontal structure is important to me, um, because then we have to depend on each other. And I think that's scary. And also that's where like joy and community lives. I think just to piggyback off of that, one of the really joyful and wonderful things that happened with um, the anti-racist BIPOC caucus and then um, the slate building the what we call, we were called the Solidarity Now explanation point slate. Um, and, you know, we have points of solidarity around which we are gathered and we have, um, you know, an understanding. And I think one of the really wonderful things that came out of just organizing the slate was a recognition that not everybody can do all of the jobs, like Charlotte was saying, and that we shouldn't. And that the whole point of organizing and the whole point of solidarity is understanding that people have different strengths. And when you're trying to pursue a strategy there are tactics that are involved and not everybody's going to be able to do all of the tactics. You know, if it, we organized three counter convocations, uh, we've organized a number of rallies outside of open when negotiations were happening, we organized um, a, a rally outside of the district office and we had a loudspeaker and the people who were on the Zoom link could hear us. And that was really hugely impactful, but it was the recognition of like, people have different skills and we need all those different skills in organizing work. You know, some there in the slate, folks who were doing graphics and, and, and making up the flyers that we were sending out, the, the bullet points that, uh, of who we were, where the, the biographies of all the candidates came from, but all of the little moving parts that put together a slate in a, cohesive coherent like so in solidarity it's solidarity now right like all of the little pieces that went into creating that slate was done by so many people and that's really like there was so much joy in that work and there was so much energy in that work of um pulling the slate together and running and then they got on the e-board and things just kind of like uh, the focus became trying to resist this structure. And I feel that's the trap that we continuously fall into is we spend our energies trying to resist instead of trying to create. And, and um, it's really easy to get into that. You know, when, when you have a, a power structure that is oppressing you, you're going to try and push it off of you. And that's, I feel, a natural human reaction. And one of the things that I'm learning through union work is that actually that's when you turn to your rank and file and that's where you lean into each other because that's a waste of energy trying to resist. And there is more joy and there is more potential in a collective, right? That is working towards the alleviation of the oppression for all versus trying to convince a group who's already set in a structure that their structure is wrong. Um, so it's, it's a real beautiful space of growth and also it's super messy. And, um, and I feel really fortunate, you know, to be in this space where people are willing to offer grace and care and support and 
and disagreement, you know, because it, you can't be in an echo chamber either, then you're not doing the work. And so to be able to have discourse is novel now, sadly, but we can, we're doing it. And I think that's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. What you said, Zara, about like creating instead of like consistently resisting. And I think also part of the part of the problem is that like while there are those structures that we do want to like dismantle within the union, like that's also a distraction from like our work against administration. Um and like Zara said, we've been trying to get a raise. I feel like outside of COLA adjustments, it's been like 10 or 15 years and even then like there's been years where we haven't even had a cola adjustment um and like there's a big disparity um in our district where we are one of the only um um districts that have this structure of like three colleges under the chancellors and the vice chancellors and our um district administration is like the best the best paid the most well paid in all of Washington state um and our faculty don't have pay parity with other local comparable community colleges right institutions and so that difference is glaring paired with the fact that like we serve largely a community of students who are students who have been systemically disenfranchised um who you know we serve a majority of black and brown students um poor students students who um are immigrants refugees right and so um the struggles are parallel i think sometimes you know and then that's what we forget sometimes um is that we are fighting alongside our students as well. Um, And one of the things that happened last year, which was really, really wonderful, was that our district, and we can talk about this later, but like made a a glaring budget error that almost cost us um, to close multiple programs. And our students and the community um, really rallied to protest those the closures of those programs, and we and the magically um, our district found a different way to handle that issue of budget, um, and they decided to investigate other avenues, um, which was mind blowing that they wouldn't do that before offering to close programs but I digress and like one of the really cool things though was that students and faculty came to the board of trustees and we're talking and we're sort of like in solidarity um fighting against administration and um I think when our students hear like how little we get paid compared to like others in the area like um you know Seattle school district just went through a wage negotiation and um and so now we also have like pay disparity with like our um colleagues who teach in the k-12 and we teach the same students because we also teach running start right (laughs) um and so i think like there's um I think like, I don't want to say that it's a distraction because it's not. And it's really important that we dismantle the oppressive structures that exist within our union. And at the same time, it is convenient for administration 
when we don't have the energy to both fight and dismantle those structures and fight their oppressive practices around pay equity and like um, serving our students the what they deserve to be uh, served right um, so I don't really have a super eloquent point here but just just to say like how all of these things kind of intersect right and like um, that the structures the oppressive structures exist like within the union but also within our colleges yeah, that seems like a really eloquent way of pointing to the big picture. And I feel like the way that both of you all were just articulating both the um, the strengths of the work you've been doing and the way that it's created some really cool relationships and new ways of, of relating to each other. That sounds like a good ending point to me. Do you all have anything else that you feel like we haven't covered that you want to touch on that you want to make sure, you know, is part of the conversation? I think like the point that I've been trying to like make at least for myself is really like that organizing should be a place of hope and joy Mm -hmm. Um, and it's been really hard to find that community when we haven't been in congregating in person you know like you Mm -hmm. can't have a big drive and like kind of just have like a block party or whatever but I at the same time at the same time have been really hopeful with how things have like unfolded over the past couple years and are continuing to grow and unfold like I think um starting starting at the Seattle colleges like in the beginning of the pandemic I started in September 2020 and I started from my home right like I I didn't go to campus until like after a year that I'd been working there which seems so unreal um and union work is where I found community on campus um and so I you know I think like that's what we really need to cling on to right like that idea that like a union is a union (laughs) I know it sounds like really corny but like I think that like before anything a union should be a community and then a community means like we disagree but also we extend care um to each other and I I'm really fortunate to have colleagues like Zara that I can do that with that's so sweet Charlotte thank you (laughs) I feel the same I also it's an interesting time that we're in I think where we are able to have a lot more clear conversations because there's a lot more vocabulary that has entered our consciousness to articulate the ways that white supremacy work to oppress people. And I don't know, the union work this the past two, two and a half years has been personally very enlightening and very helpful to, to think about how I move in the world, how I hope our, our union moves, but also to think about, I have kids and you know what what i want for them i have two brown children and uh, grown up in this world and in this country um it keeps me motivated to do this work because it's for our students it's for our kids and it's frankly it's for me and i feel like it's also for um my parents who struggle to give me this this life you know and i think that that collective work where we can share our lived experiences and see that we are valued because of them 
that's really beautiful. And that happens in rank and file spaces. And I'm really grateful for that because I don't know what else could have sustained me through the last two years, particularly, you know, when we were so isolated. Yeah. I appreciate this time to be able to talk about these experiences. I'm really glad that you both um, ended or sort of summarized there because I, I always think a union is an institution that like uh, when it's just offering you like 10% off on a car rental is not going to get it done. And <laughs> speaking to what Zara, you were saying, it's not going to get it done for my child and it's not going to get it done for me. And, and we kind of now have a few decades, I feel, of, of knowing that that's not going to work. And then for us doing the rank and file work to build the union culture where it is about people, it is about relationships, it's about um, how we work together to build power rather than about these sort of, you know, I don't know, just sort of top down things that can come, you know, a, a discount here or a marginal benefit there. So I really appreciate you both ending there. Is there anything that like you imagine, like you want to put our listeners onto a uh, a link or a project or a campaign. I know a lot of the work that you described is rank and file members doing things together. So I don't know how much, but if there is, we're happy to, you know, put it in the show notes or, or point to things, anything that you would want to plug. <laughs> um, I think the only thing that I would want us to plug is our colleges, our students, the work that we do, the programs that we have. Um, that we are serving the working class, right? We are, we are in solidarity with workers. And when we have open negotiations, please come, mm -hmm. please write to your local papers, please write to, you know, whoever and inform your community about what community colleges do and how, um, we all deserve to thrive, you know, as workers. So that's it. We don't, really, I don't have a particular link or anything though. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been super interesting. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. And rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.